Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 17. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 17. Follow the text this morning by looking at the first six verses together, and then verses 7 through 13, and then verses 14 to 18, as we look at the axis of evil, the allure of evil, and the end of evil. Verses 1 through 6, the axis of evil. Verses 7 through 13, the allure of evil. And verses 14 through 18, the end of evil. Of evil. Hear the word of the Lord. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose, of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers... On earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was... And is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seventh, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. But they are to receive authority as kings for an hour, one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. The end of evil, verses 14 through 18. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated, and peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. 
And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. The text is Revelation 17, 1 to 18. And the title is Babylon. We bemoan that we do not have enough of the church in the world. However, we tend to overlook that we have too much of the world in the church. Worldliness in the church makes us bland, like a food dish without salt. Worldliness in the church makes us drab, like a messenger without light, makes us look less set apart in the world and more and more looking like the same of the world that we see day after day as they look at us. They need to see something different. Worldliness in the church makes us less credible to, quote, call out, end quote, people from the world to the church because there seems to be little practical distinction that they can see. If you were to survey the, first, the book of 1 John, another book written by John the Apostle, you would see three cycles of tests to determine authentic Christianity. And the three tests or the fruit of authentic Christianity is to be love of the brothers and sisters in Christ. It's to be belief in the right doctrine from Scripture, sound doctrine, a doctrinal test. And it's to have the right behavior or ethics, to live a lifestyle in accordance, perfectly no, but aspirationally yes, with how we're supposed to live as Christians. If you're new with us, that happens occasionally because we can't afford a new sound system. I always tell everybody that. If you'd like to make a donation, feel free to do that. <laughs> but there are three tests for authentic Christianity recorded in 1 John, and they do well to import here. By the way, that may happen again. If so, I will not uh, stop and give you the disclaimer the second time. Those three tests of authentic Christianity are portable to here, and they matter here. Do we love one another sincerely and authentically? Do we believe what the Word says? We don't just give a wink-wink and a nod-nod and embrace some sort of false doctrine and incongruity in the text between chapters and verses and books and authors as the Holy Spirit is the divine author. So we must see the unity in the text. Do we behave in accordance with the creed that we profess? Do we behave in accordance with the doctrine that we say? Again, perfectly no, but are we trying? Is it something that we're motivated toward, love and belief and behavior? We need consistency between what we say and how we live. This is one reason why we must loathe our sin. It's why we must continue to confess our sin as the Lord reveals it to us. It's why we have a time of confession every Sunday. It's not because we have some earthly priest. We have a high priest in Christ. It's not because this is a confessional booth, per se, as Roman Catholic Church might have. We confess our sin because He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we confess our sin because it still is there. And we are to loathe it. We must see sin as the reason that the sinless Christ had to die on a cross as the only appropriate sacrifice for our sins. That once for all lamb, with a capital L, sacrificed 
Him for us as a substitutionary atonement, as a propitiation for our sins. He fulfilled all of the sacrificial system. He fulfilled all good because He was good and we are not. So He died to save us from sins. Then how much more so should we not harbor them, cling to them, We are to wage war against our sins. Why should we wage war? Well, it's certainly not to earn our salvation now, is it? That's bad doctrine. We wage war against our sins out of love for the Savior that gave so much to secure our salvation. Right? We wage war against our sins not because perfection is evidently attainable in this life, but out of a desire to live our lives that we might share our faith Incredibly to the world that is watching us to see if there's anything different about us that might be aspirational for them. I'm not asking if you can know that they will want your faith. <laughs> Only the Spirit can do that in them. What I'm asking is, will you seek to live your life in such a way that would create a contrast that they would see the difference between how you live and how they live. How you think and how they think. How you love and how they don't love. One of the things you'll see in this passage today as you stare at it closely is that it is a loveless passage. There is no love between the beast and the harlot. There is no love like there is between Christ and his church. Perhaps that's the main point in this text today. You see lovelessness, and how much more so should we pursue love of one another? Sincerely, convictionally, as evidence that the world might see our set-apartedness from them. That they might smell it and hear it generally sense how we're set apart from them because of a work that has been begun within us by our Lord. Revelation 17 and 18 is a block of text in Revelation set in a context of reviewing the sixth and the seventh bold judgments that were talked about in the previous chapter, chapter 16. Steve Gregg says, Babylon represents the world system as the seducer of the ungodly. I think that's a pretty good definition of Babylon, as we're talking about Babylon this morning. It represents the world system as a seducer of the ungodly. Babylon's pretty offer will not endure. The Lord will win. And there's not true love in worldly Babylon. Worldly Babylon offers only contractual agreements whereas the godly church offers covenantal relationships. One is short gain and short-lived. One is long gain and eternal life. There's a contrast and a choice before us today that our three brief points will elucidate. The cycles, there are seven of them in Revelation, come after the seven churches and before the New Eden. They run from Revelation 5, chapter 5 through chapter 20. 
you see in these cycles, first chapters 5 through 7, the seals, judgments, and then chapters 8 through 11, the trumpets, chapters 12 through 14, the histories of key figures, some of which are repeated today, like the counterfeit trinity of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. We see the bowls, judgment, in chapters 15 and 16, and then now in chapter 17 and 18, we see an expansion upon that with these messages of judgment toward Babylon, which again, I'm arguing, represents the world system as a seducer of the ungodly. Certainly, it rep it's more than that in history, but it represents currently the world system as a seducer of the ungodly. When we finish these two chapters, Lord willing, next week, we'll move into the sixth and seventh cycles of judgment, which is probably familiar in tenor to you, the great white horse and white throne judgments, and we'll see those in chapters 19 and 20. And in these, we again see, as one author said, that God gets glory and salvation through judgment, no matter how distasteful judgment may seem to us in a moment. In a sense, Revelation is one big contrast. We've already seen the contrast between the satanic counterfeit trinity and the Godhead authentic trinity. We've already seen that earlier in the book of Revelation. The dragon and the beast and the false prophet conversed with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm so thankful that we read about that and sang about those themes this morning because they're important. There's a real contrast. And now we get to revisit that and add to a former contrast that's embedded within the book of Revelation between Babylon and the heavenly city, between the harlot and the bride, between the world and the church. And I think that's how we dig into this today, looking at the axis of evil, the allure of evil, and the end of evil. So firstly, in verses 1 through 6, let's briefly consider the, the alliance of evil, or the axis of evil. Look at verses 1 through 6 in portions again. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to John the apostle. So we have one of these angels, fittingly, who had brought in the seven bowl judgments. And the sixth and the seven judgments seem to be about Babylon. And, and within the judgments, we see things about blood in the waters, which will make more sense, I think, in light of verses 1 and verse 15 in chapter 17 as we get to that. But as we look into this, we see these bold judgments are carrying forward, being reviewed, being expanded upon, particularly with messages of judgment against Babylon. And so one of these angels is going to give John a further look into God's unfolding plan and how the end of time will come about. And he says, I'm going to show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. That's verse 1. Now, verse 15 interprets that. It says, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. The people and multitudes and languages and nations. And so verse 1, back to it, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. It's as if she's squashing, sitting on these nations, these languages, these peoples. And if you make a bit of a tie-in here between the desire of evil to have souls and the desire of God to have souls, then you'd be making a pretty good, I think, a pretty good inference. Because when we talk about global missions, we're talking about multitudes and languages and nations, right? Well, this is what we want to reach, peoples. But so does, so does the devil. So does the false trinity. And all they can offer is counterfeit. But that counterfeit looks alluring, as we're going to see in our second point this morning. 
Just briefly to say here, as Charles Spurgeon said, and I'm going to botch this, but I know that he said it very eloquently. He said, imagine how precious a soul must be if both God and the devil are after it. Imagine how precious a soul must be if both God and the devil are after it. It's something like that. You can look it up and fact check me, but that's basically something that Charles Spurgeon said, and I think it applies here. You have the great prostitute, the, the global alliance. You have this Babylon representing the world system as a seducer of the ungodly, setting on global missions, setting on and having a mission of her own, going after the souls of men. There is an evil alliance, an unholy alliance, going after the souls of men. Verse 2 says that she's seated, well, she's seated on a lot of things we're going to see. She's seated on the peoples. It says, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. So she's allied with powerful people. With the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth, and from here on out I'll try to say earth dwellers. That's a theme in Revelation. Earth dwellers are synonymous with unbelievers on earth that do not receive the gospel. Or, and maybe for, for, for those that will, haven't received the gospel. We want to put an evangelistic tinge toward it. So earth dwellers in their revelation are synonymous with unbelievers that would in fact be deceived by this unholy alliance, this, this earthly Babylon. It says in verse 2, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with whom the wine of those, with the wine of whose sexual immorality the earth dwellers have become drunk. So they're, they're intoxicated, they've overly consumed in their intimacy with devious and self-serving powers in the world. And it's interesting in verse 3 that John gets carried away to the wilderness. Note that at the beginning of verse 3, that the angel carries John away, the good angel, the heavenly angel, carries John away in the spirit into a wilderness to see some things that we're going to talk more about. But, but pay attention to the fact that he gets carried away to the wilderness so that he can see this contrast more vividly. I think that's important because we in our lives can get so caught up in the way that things are that we can tend to not see the contrasts of what's really going on between good and evil in our world. And the Lord's Day is a wonderful day for us to refocus and through His Word, by His Spirit, understand more clearly and freshly the differences between what God's doing in the world and what the devil is doing in the world. And if these contrasts make you uncomfortable, I have to tell you this morning that that's a problem in and of itself because the Bible uses these contrasts from Genesis to Revelation. In Genesis, we have a contrast between the Creator God and the serpent Satan. In Revelation, we're now looking at the contrast between how the Godhead has made himself known to us as three in one and how Satan has tried to counterfeit it and knock it off and monetize it for his own selfish purposes. And so this axis of evil that we're seeing in verses 1 through 6 is real, even if some of the language is illustrative as apocalyptic literature tends to be. G.K. Beale reminds us of this in this first few verses. He says, One should be aware of the attractiveness of this woman draped in bejeweled attire and clothed in linen. 
since all her embrace can offer is full-strength draft of abominations and unclean things. She stands in contrast starkly to the Lamb's Bride, portrayed as a city adorned with precious stone, pearls, and gold in chapter 21. The connection between the economic factors and idolatry is well attested to elsewhere in the Bible. Customarily, each trade guild had patron gods to which members had to pay homage as well as to the Roman emperor. If Christians did not participate in such homage, they were economically ostracized and prevented from practicing their trade. The prostitute in chapter 17 that we're reading about represents these religious economic aspects of society, where often work, which often work in conjunction with a political state. The Babylonian prostitute is generally modeled after literal prostitutes who offered sexual services for money, and particularly after prostitutes like Israel who worshipped idols and fornicated for economic gain. You can read about this in the Old Testament. Any institution or facet of culture that is characterized by pride, economic overabundance, persecution, and idolatry is synonymous with Babylon. If you think about Babel in Genesis, to do a quick historical sketch, biblical sketch, Babel is where God overturned them because they were speaking the same language. They had an apparent unity. And God said, That's not, they're, not gonna, they're not acknowledging me, and I'm going to split them up. It's a, it's a stark passage in Genesis 11, 1 through 9, that's worth reconsideration on your part. And there's an ancient Babylon and a more modern Babylon, but Babylon has been an enemy of God's people throughout. In fact, as we fast forward to the exile time for God's people, when the people are exiled, it's Babylon that punishes God's people for their own idolatry, and then Babylon is turned around and punished for having punished Israel. God is God, and He can do that. But Babylon is synonymous with this world order Throughout, Babylon can be used as shorthand for Rome by the first century writers as well. Rome would have been understood as the world power of the time. And so when we talk about these seven heads and ten horns in a minute, we might want to consider that they're elucidating or sharing or trying to put us on the trail of global tyrannical powers from Egypt to the very end. Perhaps they have in mind Babylon itself or a new, re, new rendition of Babylon. These things happen throughout the ages, and maybe that's what the eighth king that was the seventh is talking about. Some think it's in reference to Emperor Nero, who died and was going to come raging again with the Parthians against the Romans. We can't be sure, but what we can be sure of is there is an economic and political system that stands to gain all it can by consuming all it can and destroying all it will, all the while never loving and giving belovedness to the Creator God. And this is a system. This is a system that is aligned one to another. It is an axis of evil. And it is being illustrated here effeminately. Look at verse 4. This woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet. And that verse ends the impurities of her sexual immorality. 
Now, certainly, sexual immorality is in view here. And the people of God are not to be known for their sexual immorality. If you are a professing Christian, a blood-bought child of God, and you are caught in the besetting sin of immorality, you should seek biblical counseling from a church leader. You should not try to go through that on your own. You should not ignore it or press it away. There is a fear or danger, rather, in being alone in your sin. And as much as I want to say that here and probably need to say it again in chapter 18 and 19, I want to say to you that sexual immorality is really not the main thing here. Sexual immorality is a way of talking about idolatry, worshiping something other than God, whether that be yourself or a worldly leader or an idol. It's about worshiping something other than God. And what she is drunk on is her unholy intimacy and her alliances with not God with God-denying powers in the world. And so verse 5 says that she wears on her forehead, perhaps as a prostitute would, and now used metaphorically, Babylon the Great. She's considered the mother of the unfaithful. So just as the church is to be the quote-unquote mother of the faithful, as the church is considered the bride of Christ, so is Babylon considered the mother of of the, or the church is the mother of the faithful. Babylon is considered the mother of the unfaithful, of abominations, of immorality, of prostitutes, of those that don't have true love but have contractual agreements that when they run out, the person is useless to you instead of covenantal relationships, which is eternal. And this drunk woman, drunk on these things, cannot help but be a party to and a part of the evil that is done to God's people because God's people always and forever stand as a witness against such God-denying, insolent, immoral, idolatrous lifestyles. And so you see the contrast. You see the contrast. So it is, it is a, a phrase to be in the world and not of the world that needs further examination and thought because it is true that we're to live in the world and not be like the world. But it is also true that at some point in our Christian lives, if we are sincerely living for Christ, that's going to bump up against the order of things going along to get along. And it may bump up against economy like it did in the first century. I'm reminded of a book that simply titled The Church on this score of the effeminateness of these two kingdoms colliding. An early church father, Cyprian of Carthage, said, No one can have God for his father who has not the church for his mother. John Stott said the church should be regarded as important to Christians because of its importance to Christ. In his book titled The Church, The Gospel Made Visible, that author notes, quote, Christ founded the church, purchased it with his blood, and intimately identifies himself with it. The church is the body of Christ, the dwelling place of his spirit, and the chief instrument for glorifying God in the world. The church is God's instrument for bringing both the gospel to the nations and a great host of redeemed humanity to himself. More than once, he goes on, Jesus said that his people would demonstrate their love for him by obeying his commandments. And the obedience which interests him is not only individual, but corporate, the body. Together, individuals and churches will go, Together they will disciple, they will baptize, they will teach to obey, they will love, they will remember and commemorate 
his substitutionary death with the bread of the cup. Jan Hus, a 15th century Bohemian reformer, put it this way, Every earthly pilgrim ought faithfully to love Jesus Christ, the Lord, the bridegroom of that church, and also the church herself, his bride. The enduring authority of Christ's commands should compel Christians to study the Bible's teaching on the church. Wrong thinking and wrong teaching about the doctrine of the church and wrong practices obscures the gospel, while right teaching about the doctrine of the church and practices clarifies it. To put it another way, Christian proclamation might make the gospel audible, but Christians living together in local congregations make the gospel visible. The local church is the gospel made visible, which is the title of his book. So our, our doctrine of the church needs to be more biblical over the course of our Christian lives. We need to make a study of it. This is what we focus on because of that in our membership class. You can take a session of that next Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock here on site in our conference room down the hall. If you'd like to do that, just let us know you want to come. And there's also a way to sign up, as we said earlier, online. And we give you materials on this teaching that's free to you and try to help you understand it because we believe in the value of it because of the premium that Jesus places on his blood of the martyrs of Jesus. That's the axis of now. Let's allure of evil, verses 7 through 13. Even in the wilderness, the opportunity and pleasure and apparent unity of evil causes an initial marvel, a fascination in John, who gets a gentle rebuke from the angel. Listen freshly to the end of verse 6 and then into verse 7 and following. But when John saw her, he marveled greatly. That's the same word that's used by the earth dwellers that marvel at Babylon. And for that matter, the beast, the unholy alliance. So John is marveling greatly at what he's seeing. Even while he's in the spirit, detached from civilization, in the wilderness, carried off into this vision for us to see that we might also be able to to kind of pull away from business as usual and consider this contrast. And the angel said to John, verse 7, why do you marvel? Like, seriously, John, are you going to marvel at, at, at the beast and, and Babylon? Are you going to are you going to be uh, allure? Are you going to face the allure? Be tempted by that? And I think that's there for us, really. I, I think that's there for us because the allure of evil is always present. We don't outgrow that allure. Temptations always abound, and and from time to time we we give in to temptation. We at least warm up to the idea of giving in to temptation. And, and when we do, we need to remember that verse I quoted earlier, that when we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from every wrong. In fact, confession is a fruit of the gospel in our lives. Confession is something that we do in order to deepen our relationship with God. It's not a habit. And as we go through life, we need to have a consistent relationship with God so we grow deeper in our relationship with Him. And so we are not unsaved. What we see in this passage is that the Lamb has marked us off as His from the foundations 
of the world. And if, if you don't like that language, you have to take issue from the text itself here in verse 8. But listen afresh. It says in verse 7, after John's marveling wrongly and he gets rebuked, it says, I tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carry her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the abyss, from the bottomless pit, and go to his destruction. And the earth dwellers whose name have not been written in the book of life, they're going to go with, to destruction with the beast, with Babylon. But listen, listen to what this says here. And the earth dwellers whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world... So whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world? Are you a believer? Then your name. And you say, well, how can that be? I would tone it differently. How can that be? <laughs> how can that be? He wrote my name down before I, I was? Is that even possible? Don't we have to pull some hermeneutical trick to rework this and to mean something it doesn't say? We have to talk about the earth dwellers' name not being written in the Lamb Book of Life, but first let's just consider the fact as a believer that you, your name was recorded by the greatest recorder in the great book, greater than the books that we write, from the foundations of the earth, from before time. Wow. That's a wonderful comment against the authority of Nietzsche. When you're tempted to give in to some short-term gain, and you need some fortification. I want you to remember that as a believer, God wrote your name down before you were born. That helps. And I want you to know something else. When you're tempted, I want you to know that there have been saints that have gone before us that have shown us what it looks like to suffer and to die for our faith. And to not give in to temptation every time. And when you're tempted, I want you to know something greater than the martyrs who did sin. I want you to remember the Lamb Himself who knew no sin, but became sin for you, that the sins that you have committed and will commit would be washed away by His blood, that you might be presented pure on the day of judgment. And then I want you to know something that was actually on this text. It says in verse 8, the earth dwellers' names, sadly, had not been written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. And they will marvel unendingly to see the beast, the false Christ, because that that was and is not and is to come clearly identifies those ones who was and is not to come. Verse 9 says, for the called, this calls to remind with wisdom, similar to what we heard in chapter 13 with regard to how to, how to interpret the mark of man or the mark of the beast. 
This here also calls for a mind with wisdom or a sanctified mind, a spiritual mind. And he tries to give some explanation for some of this symbolic imagery that's been used thus far. He says, the seven heads, this is verse 9, are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. And they also, they are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is and the other has not yet come. And when he does, he must remain only a little while. For the beast that was and is not is an eighth, but it belongs to the seventh, and it goes to destruction. It's the pause after verse 11. I've already explained this a little bit earlier. Try to get out ahead of that and front load that a little bit. Now verse 12. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power or kingdom power, but they are to receive authority as kings or kingdom power for an hour. For one hour together with the beast. So a short amount of time, that was the smallest increment of time in ancient culture was an hour. The smallest amount of time that they kept can keep minutes like we do or seconds. And so for a shortest period of time, it's going to be a short amount of time, there's going to be this, this alliance with the, the vassals of the evil alliance with these ten kings, which is probably synonymous with the key titular heads of, of different nations or at least different cognates of people in the world. And they're going to be reigning with the beast, it seems, with, with, a, with what seems to be an ironclad unity and what seems to be a cause worth joining. It says in verse 13 this, about this unity that they are of one mind and they voluntarily hand over their, their kingdom. It's basileia is the word that's used several times in this text. It means kingdom or authority. They hand over their kingdom to the beast. And so they turn this over to him. So there's this unholy alliance, verses 7 through 13 talk about. And it is an alluring alliance. The axis of evil has an allure. This alliance of evil has an allure because this is where economy flourishes in that time. This is where we can have the most goods and services, the most opportunity for acceptation and advancement. Have you ever known marginalization? And you couldn't quite put your finger on it, but you thought it might be because you're a Christ follower. Have you ever known that? And your intuition when that happens is to fight back, isn't it? And to some extent, I suppose, living in a constitutional republic, that's understandable. But mightn't we ought also to consider the category of saints being persecuted just because they're saints? Aren't there times in which, if we read the text on balance, we're going to face marginalization just because we are? I mean, as the contrasts get clearer and clearer to the watching world, and it should, they're either going to join us, or they're not going to too much like us. You understand? And we cannot be the people that capitulate on doctrinal truth in order to try to teach what itching ears in the culture want to hear. We cannot propagate a false trinity in order to try to appeal to the watching world. In fact, it's not appealing at all because they don't need us if we're just like them. But for those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life from the foundations of the world, the Spirit will charge and energize to receive our message. We need only tell it. We need only tell it. The gospel. 
you know, as a refresher, the gospel, that God made us, but all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what we've earned for that sin is eternal separation from God. But that Christ came and offers us a free gift through His sacrifice on the cross and His resurrection. He offers us resurrection too. He offers us eternal life. If only we will respond in faith. To all who receive Him, He gives the right to become a part of His family. To be wrapped up in the bride, the church who will be effeminate toward the groom, Christ, that took the initiative to secure our salvation. The allure of evil, then, has several tonics. We need to look against the allure of evil and war against it as a church, all the while proclaiming the gospel, because the axis of evil and its allure will end on the day of the Lord. God never doesn't keep His promises. He always keeps His promises. Look at verses 14 through 18, the end of evil. They're going to make war on the Lamb with their apparent unity. But evil is going to destroy itself in the end. You don't want to join with them. It says that the Lamb will conquer them, but there's some explanation for how that comes about here. But first, a declaration, as we shared in our readings earlier, that that the Lamb is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. There is no leader or Lord that is greater. There's no boss. There's no feudal Lord that's ever been greater than our Lord, and there is no king that's ever been greater than our king. And we that are with Him from the foundations of the earth that have received Him in this life are the ones that have been chosen, that have now been called and have exceeded the call of gospel and are being made faithful because He will do it. We are those people. And so here's this encouragement for us as believers in verse 14. It says in verse 15 that that angel, that heavenly angel with the bold judgment said to John and thus to us, the waters that you saw where the prostitute Babylon is seated are people, multitudes, nations, and languages. So there is a hue of gospel sharing and evangelism and worldwide missions here. And it says in verse 16, and the ten horns that you saw, they are the beast. They, They and the beast will hate the prostitute. And so you see this unholy alliance fizzling. Evil will always eat itself. It turns in on itself. There's no love in evil, no matter how much apparent one-mindedness and unity they have. In a Judah-like move, God does not do evil, but He will take evil doers and accomplish His purposes through their evil doing. We saw that with Babylon and ancient Israel, didn't we? It says here in verse 16 that the beast will then hate Babylon the prostitute and will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power, their kingdom power, to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled, and they will be fulfilled. God's words are always fulfilled, amazingly. Not just in Daniel, which is being alluded to here of the Old Testament, but right here in Revelation, which is being inscripturated here as John, caught up in the Spirit, catches this heavenly vision for our earthly good. The words of God will be fulfilled by evil turning in on themselves. There may be some regret we're going to read in chapter 18 about this. But the might of the beast will turn in on the economies of trade of Babylon and evil eats itself. As I said, there's no love in it. It says in verse 18, the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion, kingdom dominion over the kings of 
the earth. So we've seen the axis of evil and the allure of evil, and we're now reading about the end of evil. The end of all things is at hand, the Bible says. Therefore, be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Take time in solitude and maybe fasting and prayer that you might have a wilderness-like perspective on the contrast between good and evil in the world in which we live now. Because it is easy to get wrapped up into business as usual in the world and not to see where God wants you to, to stand and wants you to, to be set apart. And it may be that for a time you can get right along in the world, but, but understand how good and how blessed and how wonderful this difference between good and evil is. Trinity existed before the world began. A few applications to make today. Unbelief in your danger, your situation is more dangerous than you think, even if it seems so simple. Own Christ as his bride. Do not prostitute yourself to this world order. Christ is sufficient for any value you will add to any challenge of betterment. So only be true to your first unrelenting fidelity to the Lord and on his day of perfect worship with family and children. Unbelief can't be practiced because it's not genuine. Can't stand and see that this Jesus Christ has not been finished serving me with that integrity and that passion for the Lord. Even here now, those the Lord has chosen from baptism. Our role relationships between man and woman in the church, especially in marriage, points to an enduring reality of Christ and his church. So pray for those who long for marriage and who are in marriages. Our local church is not an extra to your salvation. It's where your individual salvation expresses your adoption into a family. 
that is eternal and our corporate salvation as the bride of Christ. We come to Christ individually, but we don't stay there. Pray through the church directory. As a member, you have access to it. And purpose to deepen your awareness of how to pray for your fellow saints right here, locally. Also by way of application, vie for the souls of men. Vie for the souls of men. Vie for them. Babylon sits on them and seeks to squash them under the weight of her opulence. But the gospel is mighty. It will persuade those whom God is calling to himself. Live the gospel, but also say the gospel out loud. The gospel is risky when spoken, but no great outcomes come without great risk, now does it? Say the gospel for the conversion of sinners that you know, for family that you love, for co-workers that you labor with, for friends on your street. Vie for the souls of men here and sacrifice to send in global missions. We are supposed to care about the languages and the nations and the multitudes. This text, by inference, says so. You don't know what God will do with your small obedience. You don't know. One said that providence is best read like the Hebrew language, backwards. We do not see the full picture God is painting. Ours is a call to spread the gospel and to endure, endure in the faith, and we should not discount the Lord's work through our seemingly small acts of sacrifice and service because providence will only be seen backwards. We get a backwards look in Revelation. Take heed lest you fall. We're not serving one that uses us, finally. We're not serving one that uses us and discards us once our usefulness seems to pass. We are not a harlot to Jesus. That's what Babylon is to the beast, to the devil. This is not a relationship of convenience, as I said in the beginning, but it's a relationship of covenant. Or it's not an agreement of convenience, it's a relationship of covenant. It's a difference between contracts and covenants. Christ's relationship with his bride is eternal. Don't you get that? You're part of something that is eternal in past and in future. Marvel not today in envy at Babylon, but instead exalt the Godhead. Lift him up. Lift him up and lift him up. Because he who began a good work in you is the one that will be faithful to complete it. He will do it. And he will use the people here as means and the services here as means to get you where you're going. Don't love the world like Demas and follow that allure, seduction and immorality. Don't be afraid of the world like John Mark was for a time, leaving the mission cause out of fear of persecution. Persecution. 